Ava Girolametti was diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia just before her seventh birthday in the spring of 2016. On today's podcast, her father, Mark, will talk about Ava's ordeal, which included a relapse in early 2019. That relapse led to a change in treatment for Ava as she became one of the first patients at Boston Children's Hospital to undergo CAR T-cell therapy. Ultimately, this therapy worked, and Ava has now been cancer-free for 32 months. Along the way, Ava, who is a big fan of the Boston Bruins, was befriended by legendary Bruins Hall of Famer John Busick, who became like an uncle to Ava and maintains a close relationship with Ava, Mark, and the Giro Lametti family. Thank you for listening to this podcast. It is now my pleasure to welcome Mark Girolametti to my podcast. Thank you very much for joining me. It's great to have you here. Thank you. And I really appreciate the opportunity. Now, you have quite a story to tell about your daughter, Ava. And we'll begin by going back to the spring of 2016, just a few weeks before Ava was to turn seven years old. Before I ask you about her fever spike, uh, which started the ball rolling very quickly downhill, had Ava's health been good up to that point? As far as we were concerned, it was perfect. Uh, what had happened, actually, before you mentioned that fever spike, less than 24 hours prior, she had a softball game. And I was her softball coach. And for a six-year-old girl, she was very well-coordinated, very well-balanced. She was a great athlete. And suddenly she couldn't catch the ball. She couldn't swing right. She couldn't run correctly. And if you know Ava, you also know she's a bit of a practical joker. And I just assumed as her father slash coach at the time that she was just fooling around, wasn't having uh, her typical day and just didn't want to be there. So we had a couple words on the sideline where I expressed that perhaps she shouldn't play if she wanted to fool around and she got tremendously upset. And then finally, um, by the stroke of luck, one of her teammates' fathers is a pediatric hematologist. And without me knowing, he walked over to my wife uh, on the sidelines and mentioned that Ava just didn't look right. And it might be in our best interest to have her checked by a doctor than, as soon as possible. And we finally spoke to her about it. And that evening, she had mentioned she was really fatigued. Uh, she just didn't want to say anything to us because she thought she was simply tired. And then the next morning, she went to the doctor. She had a bit of a spike in the fever. So the doctor took her in on a Saturday and it shot up to 103 and they tested her positive for strep throat. However, she had mentioned that she was fatigued and achy and the doctor thankfully was on top of their game, suggested let's do some blood work, even though we have a positive strep test. 
And within an hour, they called back and said, we have contacted Boston Children's Hospital. There's an anomaly in her blood work. They're expecting you. Take your time, but try to get there as soon as possible. And and that's when it all started. Okay, so you're getting ready for a softball game. I mean, uh, uh, a game mm-hmm. playing, mm-hmm. and 24 hours later, at roughly three o'clock in the afternoon, mm-hmm. um, Ava is diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. That is correct. That that is the fastest by far diagnosis I've ever heard. I've talked to many parents on on this podcast over the last two years who've waited weeks, if not months, to get a proper diagnosis of their child's illness. And there you were getting a diagnosis within hours that came totally out of the blue, I'm sure. How are you and Allison able to begin the process even the process of wrapping your arms about what had just happened. So one, I I don't typically praise myself for anything. I have a slight modesty problem, but in this case, whenever there's a crisis, for some reason, I have this ability to, to stop quickly process and assess what we need to do and then move forward. And Something told me when we got to the emergency room and told them we were there and Ava sat on my lap and my lap started to burn. Her body was so hot. And when we got to the triage nurse and she took Ava's temperature, it wasn't 103 anymore. It was up to 108. And, and so my body had been sweating from holding her. And so at that point I knew with such a high spike in temperature that we were not going to expect normal news of, Oh, we'll just give her some medicine. She'll be doing cartwheels by tomorrow. Uh, I knew something bad was coming. And so I was prepared for it. I was prepared for those words. I didn't know what those words were. I didn't know what they, what path we were heading down. But I was sort of ready for it. Uh, Allison, I don't think she was. I don't think she wanted. Allison's a little more pragmatic than I am and is is of the ilk to just give me the pure black and white information and then we'll decide from there what to do. The good thing is, is Patrick, our friend from the night before, who pointed out uh, that Ava didn't look well, uh, was the first phone call she made. Uh, Because she just needed someone to calm her down. There was nothing I could say as her husband, uh, even though we knew we were in it together. Uh, I had no insight into what we were just told in terms of ALL. And, And the doctor who delivered the news from the ER was an ER doc. Uh, She was just relaying information that was confirmed to her. And so um, she called Patrick and Patrick calmed her down, which was so beneficial. It really got the ball rolling in the right direction for both of us as a team to be able to then go speak to both of our kids and and get things started. Uh, unfortunately, then the oncology team jumped right on it. They were down in the ER with us. And that's when they mentioned that we weren't going home for at least a month. And that's hard to hear. It's hard to hear as a parent, much less as a child, to have your life completely uprooted like that. And and it was just 
a lot. It was a lot to process. And the only, I, I constantly tell people the only way to describe the feeling, it's like getting hit by a freight train that had a, a bed of tanks on the back with uh, more freight trains behind it. It just, it's, you can't explain it. It just felt so bizarre. Uh, but you have to get yourself up. You have to dust yourself off and you have to do it because it's your children and, and your personal feelings sort of don't matter at the beginning, at least. <laughs> and it's, it's about championing, championing for them and going from there. Okay. So Ava was admitted to Boston yep. Children's Hospital, as we discussed, and began a standard leukemia treatment there which is generally a 30-day stay in the hospital, followed by a two-year outpatient treatment, which generally is given at the Jimmy Fund Clinic. Correct. Can you talk about that period and how Ava handled the chemotherapy that she received? Well, I would say the first week was definitely the most difficult. Uh, Suddenly, not only did she go from having one IV in her arm, she went from having a pick line put in and into her first ever surgery where anesthesia was involved. And that was to start the chemotherapy process uh, with a lumbar puncture in her spine, as well as to insert the pick line, as well as to readjust other lines. And she was just miserable. It, it was not comfortable. She, we were stuck in a really tiny hospital room and it was almost comical when the medical team would come in for their checkups every day and you'd have to attempt to fit everyone in the room. It was that small. You couldn't pull it off. Uh, so there was some humor around it where you tried to make her laugh. Uh, what got her through that first week was a us as a family, just maintaining our strength and positive attitude to the nurses at Boston Children's Hospital, who are the real saints in all of this, who you still to this day, I cannot believe this is what they deal with on a daily basis, but they do and they do it with a smile and they do it with courage and passion and real honesty. And they got not only us as parents through it, but they got her through it in in a real positive way. Um, And then some of the nonprofits who are connected to that oncology floor, um, sending in games uh, for Ava to play and just keep her occupied. Artwork, um, musical therapy, um, all the peripheral programs just hit you right away. Um, but the good thing is you can say no to what you don't want to. And she certainly said no to a lot. She has a inherent distrust of clowns. So no clowns were allowed. She actually made a sign on her door, no clowns allowed. So uh, she very quickly established her own presence and what she wanted and didn't want from the experience. Uh, Well, Boston Children's is a great place, uh, of course. I think you were fortunate, even though you were in a small room, at least you were there when there were single rooms because it used to all be double rooms until probably three or four years before that. But uh, uh, the nurses and the child life specialists, everyone up there is wonderful. Now, initially her leukemia was knocked out by the chemo, by the chemotherapy. Eva went into remission. How long did her remission last and was she able to return to some sort of a normal way of life during that period? 
Yeah, and I would say even before that, even before she was declared cancer-free the first time, uh, the therapy sort of stretches itself out. It becomes a lot more tolerable and manageable. So she was able, she played soccer through her treatment. Uh, she would have her good days and bad days. She was still in school. Um, we could project, predict the days we would keep her home, um, depending on the certain medication she was getting at that time. Some days she'd miss one, just one single day. Some day it would be two in a row. Uh, once she was declared cancer-free, it was in June and therefore school was pretty much over. So she had a summer to rebuild herself and then go and then start fresh in the fall. Um, it was six months from that point that she was, uh, in re she relapsed, uh, in, in January of that year. And after two years of going through it as a parent, you get really keen on the signs and we knew she had relapsed before we even got her tested. It, it was kind of that obvious. That was going to be my next question, because we're now talking about January of 2019, mm -hmm. uh, which is roughly two and a half years since the original diagnosis. So you noticed that something was wrong pretty quickly rather than going for a regular scan, not knowing anything and assuming everything was OK. Yeah, I mean, she got her skin color changed. She started to get petechiae all over her skin and the fatigue kicked back in. We and she was running a low grade fever for a few days and it just wouldn't go away. And at that point, I reached out to her lead oncologist. And even and the interesting thing is she had an appointment scheduled for the next week for a checkup. And I had said it just doesn't feel right. And I think we need to come in today. And we did, and they did blood work. And even before they did the even before we got the results back, she went and had an exam with her oncologist and the oncologist looked at me, just gave me the look and I knew what was coming out of her mouth. And then she had to wait for the confirmation from the lab. And sure enough, she was, uh, you know, back in it and told we can't go home again. We gotta, we're here for another 30 days. Okay. And so. So sorry about that. Um, so she goes back onto the chemotherapy regimen. How did that work? And of course, we know the answer to that. And for how long was she on the regimen, that regimen before a change was made? So it wasn't, it, it, it's a pretty standard relapse program. And they changed up some of her chemotherapies just to effectively trick her body, knowing that the cancer beat the original treatment plan. So they figured, let's, let's see if we can fool it this time. And it didn't do anything. Uh, by the time we had our last lumbar puncture, her bloodstream was about 65% cancer. And so we immediately went into the next plan. I having lived this for so long, just I'm the type of person that has to understand where this space is moving from a evolution standpoint. And so I was very well versed in CAR T cell therapy at that point from as, as much research and, and 
and diving into articles and stories and white papers as I could. And the first thing out of my mouth to the doctors was, are we going to CAR-T? And they said, well, it maybe. <laughs> and and we, I think they, they really wanted to. But up to that point, especially through that hospital, there hadn't been a kid on a single relapse who had gotten CAR-T yet. So that started a little bit of a process, a little bit of a wait and see. So we did a little management chemotherapy just to kind of keep the cancer at bay while we waited and then finally got the approval to move forward. And and that changed everything at that point. Now, Ava's oncologist was Dr. Maya Lowite. So it it was a team actually at, at that point, it was also Andy Place. Um, and Maya Illawite. So uh, they worked in conjunction. Now Maya is officially Ava's primary uh, oncologist for as long as she'll have us. Uh, but it was it was Andy and Maya as a team to begin with. They were our team for two years. Um, and so it was them really kind of working together to make this call. Okay. Can you explain to our listeners exactly mm-hmm. what this therapy is and what it entailed for her. So if I can put it in the most simple of terms, CAR T cell immunotherapy uh, is a way of using a patient's own immune system to fight the cancer, effectively free and clear of any radiation and chemotherapy that you could typically do. So what happens is, and what this meant for Ava is we had to admit her back into children's for, I believe, three days it was. She had to have a surgical procedure to have a catheter inserted into her neck. And then once that settled in and she was fine and there was no infection, what they did is they wheeled this apheresis machine into her hotel, uh, hotel, <laughs> that's how nice Boston Children's Hospital is. I, treat, I consider it a hotel, her hospital room. Uh, they hook it up to the catheter and they had they cycle her bloodstream through this machine three times and pull her T-cells out in the process. What happens after that, uh, once they confirm they have enough, they send it off to Novartis and there's a team at Novartis that re-engineers those T-cells by adding protein spikes and some other bells and whistles for her about a month later to come back in. And it's considered a stem cell transplant and to have those cells reinserted back into her body uh, for them basically to hunt and kill cancer. That's legitimately their only job. And uh, there are incredible risks to it, uh, which we were willing to take. And it was an an amazing experience in in a, I wouldn't say positive or negative way. It was just truly enlightening uh, to work with the team because once you go into CAR T-cell therapy at Boston Children's Hospital, your oncology team expands. For a patient like Ava, who had so much cancer in her system, the expectation was that the battle that waged within her was going to put her in the ICU, which it eventually did. Uh, We were there for about 12 days, seven of them. She was intubated 
because the cytokine release syndrome had just exploded inside of her and they needed to kind of take things down to the bare minimum so her body could continue to fight for as long as it could. Uh, that ICU team down there, I'm going to start getting really emotional. Some of the greatest doctors you'll ever meet in your life. You've never met more smart people than you have in that ICU team. And everything that they told us that would happen to her, happened to her, everything that they said they would do for her and how it would end up, it happened exactly as they described it. Uh, and it was absolutely fascinating. Um, and, and the, the people that again, and once again, ICU nurses, you think oncology nurses are incredible. ICU nurses have a different gear and, and they couldn't have been more wonderful to Allison and myself. They couldn't have been more wonderful to our other daughter when she came in the visit. They couldn't have been more wonderful to Ava, one of her, her nightly nurse that was there every night during her intubation gave her a manicure and pedicure. Ava had no idea. She was, you know, had tubes coming out of every part of her body. And here's this nurse filing her nails, painting her nails, talking to her every night as if nothing was going on. And it was such a beautiful experience to witness. Well, the interesting thing um, that crossed my mind as you were talking about that was, again, this procedure was a rare one at Children's Hospital. It hadn't mm -hmm. been done maybe more than a few times. And yet the ICU people, even though they weren't probably familiar with the procedure, knew how to handle it, um, which is obviously uh, even more of a, uh, a a great thing, knowing that uh, they may have been going this uh, into this thing, maybe a little blind as opposed to other situations, which they more normally handle. Right. And, and what I know per my discussions and, and, you know, good doctors don't even toe the line of HIPAA violations, but I asked, you know, what patient is she? And they said, she's our 10th patient. And I said, how many have made it to the ICU? And they said more than a few. And so not all, they said, but not all of them. So that's the thing we know about CAR T. The thing is, they told us that if by day eight, nothing happens within her body, she doesn't develop a fever and doesn't look like she's kind of commonly sick, they would send us home. And after day eight, we were expecting to be sent home because nothing had happened. And her, her doctors came in, um, Dr. Margosian at the time, who was handling the CAR T cell portion of the treatment said, yeah, we want to just keep you for one extra day just to see. And with, as if they knew at a certain point on the clock, it would kick off the next day, nurse took her temperature. She had a spike in the fever and the on-call oncologist came in and said, we're going to send you to the ICU before things get out of control. And they just knew they, they knew it was coming. And it's fascinating, like you said, with very little data to work with. And, and they just did everything according to plan. Uh, the good thing is we had gone over this plan personally. We'd sat down. It was as if we were Bill Belichick and the 
Patriots where we were doing our defensive plan for the week. Uh, that's what it was. And we, we planned it ahead of time. And by the book, we went pretty much through the plan. And so our expectations as parents were there. Nothing deviated from that. Now, you mentioned before that uh, they explained to you what the risks were. Mm -hmm. What was some of the ones that, of course, you don't want to hear any of them, of course, but sure. what was some of the ones that really stood out for you and Allison and the doctors to watch for perhaps more than uh, than uh, some other ones, which might have been a little bit less uh, of an issue? I don't think there was anything beyond death that we uh, cared about. Uh, there, there, there was no, once they, once they mentioned that she could potentially die from it to me, there was nothing else to talk about. Uh, we, we knew that was the end and that was the highest risk you could possibly take. So there was really no need to discuss other side effects. The, the one thing that they did keep an eye on was because her, leukemia made it into her central nervous system. She had to take certain medications uh, to protect her brain. And there were some side effects that came along with the medications. And what we just had to look for the telltale signs just in case. And then every time they did a checkup, they would make sure that medication was doing its job and it worked flawlessly. There were zero side effects from it. Um, Okay, so, so go ahead, she, ask your question, because I, I, I have sort of an end to this, too. <laughs> well, do you want to go through the end first and then and then uh, we can move on? Or, or should I ask my question? Whatever's more comfortable uh, for you. No, ask your question. Okay, so you get to day eight mm -hmm. uh, in the thing and everything seems to be normal. Now, when they said to you that normally when it gets to day eight and nothing happens, they send the patient home. Does that mean that the procedure has worked? Or does that mean that there are problems because nothing has, uh, there hasn't been any particular reaction to it? It can mean what it can mean anything. That's, that's how new this treatment is. Uh, when they say not all kids made it to the ICU, it's because sometimes they didn't have to go to the ICU and yet the CAR T cell, CAR -T cell therapy worked. Uh, for these kids, it, every, it, it just proves every body is different. Everyone's cancer is different. You can have the same title to your cancer, but everyone's experience inside their own bodies is completely different. And so, um, but we were given warning. We were given where they said, if you are sent home, you, here's a list of things you need to look for. One, if she develops any fever, you get back here immediately. Uh, that was number one on the list. And then there were just some other sort of, you know, the typical, I mean, going through COVID as we've gone through COVID, everyone should be schooled on, you know, the phrase cytokine release syndrome. Um, everyone experiences it when they're sick, when you have the flu or you have other serious illnesses. And it's that typical reaction by a body that we were, would have to look for. Um, the crazy thing to think about is the doctors, because the treatment is so new, because the data is few and far between 
are secretly cheering for the kids to go to the ICU because then they're guaranteed to know that the CAR T cell therapy is actually working and it's doing its job. The kids are supposed to feel like they're sick. They're supposed to feel miserable. Um, that battle going on inside their body, having it present itself is a, a victory for them. Uh, and we just kind of had to go along with it. And we, you feel bad for your child when her fever spiked and they had to roll in the cooling mats for her to lay on. She was still so miserable and asked me to climb into bed with her. And I'm laying on a frozen cold cooling mat, hugging my daughter for hours on end with half of my body going numb. Uh, but that's what you do. There's there's no other option. I can't think of another option. And and just to guide her through it. And just you could tell I could I could watch the monitors, I could watch her heart rate, could watch when the Tylenol started to work, but I could also watch when I was holding her how she would sort of calm down a little bit. And knowing that very small sacrifice I was making of freezing half of my body was worth every second of the effort. Mm -hmm. And Ava happens to be a huge Boston Bruins fan. Oh yeah, she is. And that year the Bruins took St. Louis to the seventh game of the Stanley cup finals before losing the seventh game. Thanks to her uncle. Now I'm going to ask you, is, is this uncle your brother? This is my sister's husband. Your sister's husband, uh, which Ava was not happy he was going to the game because every time he went to the game, they lost. So my my question to you is, is he to blame for the loss or are we still going to blame Brad Martian who didn't get off the ice in the first period and St. Louis ended up scoring? So whose fault was the loss? That's that. That's an important question. Well, considering my sister and her family, we live in the same town as we do. Um, If you asked all the members of our community, the brother-in-law lost the Stanley Cup for the Boston Bruins. And and I believe he's still known as the guy who blew the Stanley Cup for the Boston well, Bruins. It, it, it's a great, uh, I'm sure, a great honor to him. And of course, I'm being <laughs> facetious. Now, can you talk about during that period, Ava's relationship with the Bruins organization, especially Johnny Busick, uh, who in my day was a, a big star uh, on the 1970 and 72 Stanley Cup playoff uh, victorious teams. And his interest in Ava during uh, this period. So let me, so I have to back it up just a little so we can understand between CAR T cell immunotherapy and how we got to game seven of the Stanley cup. Um, So CAR T cell immunotherapy, the girl was excavated. They had determined that the CAR T worked. She was kept in the ICU. And then within two days, was doing physical therapy and told you can go back to the oncology floor. You're fine. And I mean, that it was fascinating to watch a girl who was hooked up to a breathing assistance machine for so long within 48 hours to be discharged out of there. So what we had to do, and this is how we, how things lead to John Busick and how they lead to the Boston Bruins is we had decided If the CAR T cell therapy worked, we would then move on to a bone marrow transplant. 
Boston Children's Hospital is quite a conservative hospital, and they tend to operate on the dogma of why play with fire, even though we have this new treatment that seemed to have gotten rid of her cancer. Why don't we just ensure that that cancer never comes back and do this tried and true treatment? So part of preparing for the bone marrow transplant, again, I mentioned earlier that her cancer had made it into her brain. So she had to prepare for radiation for her brain. Um, You have to do radiation for your body, uh, but for her, she had to add on brain radiation. Anyone who's listening to this or anyone who knows someone who's had brain radiation, you have to have a special mask uh, to wear so they can target the radiation and not have it just be sort of spread over your head. It's it's in very minute, specific locations, and the mask help uh, not only protect your face, but help with the targeting. So the triangle of Boston Children's Hospital Dana-Farber and Brigham and Women's, where the radiation center is, the Brigham and Women's team came, were part of the preparation process, and we had to go get fitted for a mask. And as we're going through that fitting process, the team had mentioned to Ava, we have a nurse who's an artist who volunteers her time to decorate masks for all pediatric patients. And they said, most boys will pick a superhero and most girls will pick either a superhero or a Disney character or whatnot. And Ava grabbed my phone and did a Google search, pulled up an image of Tuka Rask's goalie mask and handed it to the nurse and said, I want this. And the nurse said, I am on it. And so she did almost as best she could an exact replica of Tuka Rask's goalie mask. Now, when that happened, I happened to be talking to David Wade, who's the news anchor from WBZ News. I'd mentioned this story to him and he just fired back at me and said, we have a story. I'll have a crew at your house tomorrow. I wasn't pitching him on a story. He just thought it was fascinating, especially during the Stanley Cup playoffs that this was going on. And word eventually reached through some channels. Actually, my brother-in-law was the connection to the connection to Johnny Busick, um, the brother-in-law who lost the Stanley Cup. So I don't know how we're still in favorite status with the team, but they... um, got wind of it. WBZ did their story. It got sent right over to John and John got game seven tickets in our hands. And suddenly after the Bruins had lost the Stanley cup, and this is a story I only tell a select few people, but I feel like it's worthy of this. After the game, we got a text message from John that said, I'm miserable. Come to the Kowloon. So I look at my brother-in-law and I said, NHL Hall of Famer just invited us to the Kowloon at 1130 in the evening. Uh, We're going to the Kowloon at 1130 in the evening. And we went and we hung out for a couple hours and he had our, what he had planned. He had expected the Bruins to win the game and we were going to somehow be invited down to the celebration. And he had actually gone into the locker room before the game and gotten Tuca to autograph a photo for Ava. And 
in the context of our conversation at the Kowloon, he just got so enamored with this story where, I don't know, three, four, five days later, he was in our living room. And he showed up like brewing Santa Claus, just had a bag full of presents for her. And he brought his wife and she's the sweetest human being. And since then, we've just had this incredible relationship. And I, I joke around and I say I inherited an uncle. I mean, he, he and I, we just spoke on the phone the other day, just general check-ins. How are you? You know, oh, my what my furnace broke <laughs> like help me talk you know what kind of efficient new furnace should i consider those type of conversations so it's real human relationship as it not it's it, it's not kept at a distance and and to ava she has this sort of additional grandfather and you know anytime he calls he doesn't greet me like hey mark how are you it's how's ava First words out of his mouth every single time. Uh, he has to get the status update and then we can move forward with anything else. Uh, and it's one of he's and his reputation as as an incredible person and someone so giving and caring and kind uh, is is beyond a hundred percent true. It's an incredible story, and uh, certainly glad that you felt. Uh, free enough to to uh, to say it because that that's something that really is uh, uh, awe inspiring in a way because this is a, a well known man he's taking you know his time to comfort you and to do whatever he can for you and Ava and it makes I'm sure him feel very good when he can make such a great contribution. Now, before you said the story, of course, had not ended, which it had not. After Ava's CAR T cell treatment. There were about five or six weeks um, from there. What happened during that time period after the procedure was completed for her? After the CAR T cell therapy, life actually returned to normal. Um, she was free of her cancer and she felt like a million dollars. She felt better than she had felt in a long time. And so but what we knew is we were headed in, in August in, back into the hospital for her bone marrow transplant. So we had a, a couple months of just pack it in fun and, and live as, as much a life you can possibly live in that time. Because again, you're going into a, a, a heavy, though proven, it's a heavy duty procedure. Um, there are heavy risks involved in it, even though those risks are mitigated. But even with them mitigated, it's pretty much a miserable experience. And you know, going into it, it's a miserable experience. And even meeting with the, you get shifted again to another transplant team and meeting with them, we had to meet with them twice because after the first time I looked at Allison and said, this sounds like the scariest thing ever. I'm not sure I want to go through this again. We've we've had our emotions tapped through CAR-T. And this is the first time in Ava's treatment we've actually been given the option to say no. And so we thought long and hard about it. We took a, a weekend and we lost a lot of sleep and we had a lot of late night conversations. And then we decided, we're, let's just meet again with the team. We met again with the team, sort of understood the plan from a different angle that helped calm our nerves. Uh, we asked a million questions and 
we proceeded and, and eventually got through that as well as another 39 days in the hospital. Um, but then coming out of that, you have no immune system. So that poor girl had to go into isolation for upwards of 12 months, which meant she couldn't return to school. She had to do school virtually. Um, she ended up doing before zoom became a thing was she was FaceTiming into her classes and her classmates were so supportive. She, her best friend was in her class and her best friend would carry a laptop around school connected to FaceTime. So Ava could move to music class or move to gym class and just see everybody. And it was absolutely incredible uh, how that whole experience was for her. Now, how long was she actually in isolation? Did it happen to be all 12 months or was she able to come out of it before then? So she, for the first time in her entire cancer experience, she got on the right side of the expectations. She had always been on the bad side of them or the extended side or the statistics aren't in your favor. This time she was quoted nine to 12 months and her body got itself ready within six. And she was given the clearance to go back to school. Um, Before that, she actually got clearance to go to a Bruins game. And so guess who demanded he take Ava to her first Bruins game? But once again, Mr. John Busick, Uh, And that was such a special experience uh, for her. And she got the clearance to go to school. So she was so proud of all the hard work she did, because if you had seen post-transplant, things didn't look good. She had lost a lot of weight. She looked emaciated. She was miserable. She couldn't eat. Um, We had a friend sort of step up to the plate uh, who worked for a company that created a special project product uh to help kids like her rebuild their stomachs and i they're friends of ours from our town and i consider them lifesavers however um when she got the clearance to go back to school and we had a target date for it is when the covid shutdown started and she was told she couldn't back couldn't go back to school and of any kid who was upset by the covid shutdown it was that child uh because she had, again, worked so hard and prepared herself, beat the expectations, was so proud of herself. And then suddenly is just back on Zoom calls. And the good thing is she already had plenty of experience with it. So she was able to teach her classmates how to properly prepare for virtual school. And she was able to sort of drag her class over the finish line for the rest of the school year. And then We all know what happened after that. And so for her to actually return to school after almost two full years was an emotional and monumental experience last year. Uh, And we we were definitely the only parents truly crying. (laughs) Well, you're crying tears of joy, among other things, thankfully. And it's now been. 32 months since February of 2020, as you said, just before uh, COVID hit, uh, that Ava has been declared cancer free. She's mm-hmm. now 13 years old. How is she doing physically, socially, and mentally? 
And would you say that her life is now on a track, uh, at least somewhat normal or hopefully more normal than that same type of track that perhaps her peers are on? Um, so physically is the one aspect where we're still patiently waiting to come around. Uh, certain chemotherapies that she took actually physically moved her hips, physically moved her ankles. Uh, and you need to wait an extended period of time for those to come back. The radiation also did a number on her. So we've had her in physical therapy in and out. Uh, for a little while. We have recently stopped that just in hopes um, that nature would sort of resort to taking over. Um, But she doesn't mind. She's not miserable. She's not upset. She has had to sacrifice certain things. She can't play certain sports anymore. Um, She's mentally gotten through that. uh, And therefore, it's not too devastating um, for her because she did love, she wasn't quite an athlete. So she really loved playing everything. Uh, and she's just moved on. She's moved on to cooking. She, she does play tennis uh, and she loves to um, perform um, during COVID um, when she had a theater camp canceled, she decided to throw, uh, get about 16 kids together that rehearsed all summer and they put on the sound of music. Uh, it, it was, it was amazing. And she led it all like, and, and it was, it, it makes you so proud as a parent to see your child step up like that, just during sort of a time of crisis for everybody and to keep kids occupied for a summer and no charge, just come over our house. We're going to rehearse and have a good time. And, uh, mentally she's doing great. I think you know, she's got a combination of being a teenager plus, uh, managing her survival tactics that she learned um, throughout her treatment process. Um, certain things she learned were really cancer specific. And so once you get back into sort of sort of normal society, you kind of have to take those away and we're sort of learning to take those away, but she's a wonderful kid. Like her teachers praise her. She's a wonderful kid in public. She's so helpful and sweet and kind and generous and um, academically, she's killing it. Uh, it's it's unbelievable. We were so nervous about how she would perform academically after missing school for so long. Um, and now she's a straight A student. And it's absolutely amazing to watch. It's, uh, it's amazing to watch. It must be incredibly gratifying to watch. Now, you and Allison have an older daughter, Sophia, who is, of course, Ava's older sister, How has it been for her over the past six years as a sibling to watch her younger sister go through so much? Has she herself experienced any side effects uh, emotionally uh, more than anything else that can and do happen uh, as they, as a sibling watches either their brother or sister uh, during a time like this? Well, I, Sophia, it's so easy to compare your children to one parent or the other, but Sophia has that ability to rise up during a crisis. Uh, I see it amongst her friend group and 
So during Ava's experience, and and as young as Sophia was at the time, really pulled it together to be this incredible support system for Ava. Um, There were definitely days, because Ava was on steroids a lot. Steroids just caused so many mood swings. There were just days where she wasn't having it or you try to have a normal conversation with her as a parent and it just wasn't clicking and, and she would, you know, yell and scream or potentially throw a tantrum. And the one thing that sticks out about Sophia is on those days, she would just come up to Allison and or I and say, I've got this under control. You guys don't have to do anything. And she'd take Ava to one of their bedrooms 20 minutes later, they'd just be laughing. And we just look at each other and be like, we, you just can't beat a sibling. You, you, you can't get, you can't get it any better than this. And at the same time, they're two Italian sisters. So they, they go at it uh, on a daily basis. And it's, part of me gets really frustrated by it. And then the other part of me has to remind myself, I can't wait till we can get back to the life when these two girls are at each other's throat, just because they're sisters fighting over a bathroom. And, and that's where we are right now with them, which is great. And, but Sophia means it remains the supportive sister. Um, She's not a sideline cheerer. She doesn't, you know, you know, make the proverbial signs and say, go Ava, but she's just really a quiet steward for her, um, guides her through life. Cause Sophia has a few years on her and has experienced a little more. So Ava's really good at asking questions, seeking advice, even with homework. She doesn't even ask us, which is great. She just goes to her big sister. She knows her big sister's great at math. She had a math question and Sophia very patiently sits down and explains it to her in a way that only Ava can understand. And that's the type of support we just love to see. So it's not so outward um, per se, but it's definitely there uh, in, in, like I say, Sophia's special way. Well, it's, it's such a difficult, first of all, it's obviously a difficult position to be in being a sibling three years older or so than um, her sister. And secondly, it's the age. I mean, you know, teenage right. girls or teenage boys, it's a very, very tough age. Right. So you you certainly have had to put up with uh, an awful lot uh, during this period. How would you say this experience has changed you and Allison? It's made us better people. Uh, that's the first answer that both of us would say. Um, we've become a better family. We've become a tighter, stronger family. Uh, we've become better to each other. We've become better to our outward community. Um, so many people supported us through this. Um, and then we're just the types who have to give back immediately. So we find our way of doing it. Um, we have gone and raised tens of thousands of dollars um, for Children's Hospital, Dana-Farber, um, One Mission nonprofit, other nonprofits. 
Um, we've raised money for individual families who have had to sell their homes throughout this process because they didn't have the fortune of the insurance that we have, uh, which is so traumatic to hear, you know, same kids, same challenge, same family, same issues, just missing one ingredient and that's the right insurance. And so raising thousands of dollars for folks like that. Um, and then Alice and I always make sure for some, you know, unfortunately our town has this unusual amount of pediatric cancer, at least in my eyes, it's an unusual amount. And we always get the phone call. Such and such a kid was just diagnosed with lymphoma. Such and such a kid was diagnosed with leukemia. Um, is there anything you can do for the family? And what we'll do is we'll say, put us in touch with the parents immediately. And then we will talk to the parents and say, your kids are fine. The whole community is going to rally around them. Your, your rides to soccer practices, to school, your meals, everything will be covered. But the one thing that we've learned from this is you're going to be forgotten about at a certain point. There will be one or two people in your lives who will always stick by you 100% of the way, but even that's exhausting for them and potentially for you. So we'll be those Sherpas for you to guide you through the process. Because again, only a cancer parent understands a cancer parent. And so we've acted in that way for a few families and um, really had hard conversations, talked about the hard truths with people. but. Um, everyone's better as a result. If you if you can help people and help them anticipate what's going to happen, it just makes it so much easier. Um, we had somewhat support like that, but not the type that we're giving people right now um, because you always learn lessons. Um, certain things just inspire you to do certain things. And, and we had, Allison and I had said to each other, we just don't want people to experience exactly how we did. We want to make it better for everyone that we come across. And that's how we do it. And to this day, we still do it. Well, the thing that the, the fact is, is it hasn't been that long since Ava uh, has been declared cancer free, as we said before, 32 months. My final question would be, do you expect down the road that you and Allison will perhaps expand uh, your giving back to others because once you get a reputation of doing it, which you've been doing more and more people, particularly if you have a town that is uh, more susceptible for whatever reason to pediatric cancer, uh, there are going to be more and more people coming out of the woodwork, which obviously isn't a good thing, but they'll, at the same time, they'll say, well, uh, you know, we have a family here, uh, in in the Giro Lametti's who have uh, helped so many people. So is it something that you're prepared to expand as time goes on? Yeah. And I, I've been still paying attention to what's out there. And there are some services that bring parents together. And I know the hospitals try to do a good job of it, but the most difficult thing and no fault to say Dana Farber, for example, who offers sort of a parent support program. But when you're at Dana Farber, you're there to support your child. Uh, you're committed to those hours. And some days your treatment days are so long, especially when you're 
in the beginning of leukemia, for example, you could be there upwards of five, six hours at a time. It's exhausting. Going there for checkups and only hanging out for an hour to an hour and a half is still mentally exhausting for me because I, I know what I'm walking into and I see the other kids and I see where they are in, in their journey and you start to empathize with parents. I talk to anybody. I will, if I have an opportunity to talk to a parent, I will, um, even if it's just to put a smile on their face, not to let them know our story, but maybe to let them know they're going to be okay. Um, but so to have parents need something outside of the hospital. And, and, and that's the one thing I've been thinking about a lot uh, to have some sort of support program that can be done under normal circumstances, maybe after work on a weekend or, you know, definitely not within the context of the hospital environment. Um, there's support when you're in, when you're inpatient, uh, which is fantastic. Parents bond with each other. Um, I've bonded with plenty of parents as a result of just being there every day and seeing the same faces. Um, but then that ends. Um, eventually everyone gets out of the hospital, you would hope. And so to have long-term support, because there are long-term issues. I still have my challenges uh, it's traumatic. It's a traumatic experience. And the first thing to do is admit that you have experienced something very traumatic and, and then work your way through that. So I can be the first person to say that, yep, my kid's been declared cancer-free. We actually just had an appointment a few weeks ago where they finally said, we're not worried about your leukemia coming back. Um, hearing that, I, <laughs> may have burst into tears somewhere along the line. Um, but then, you know, I have to maintain my excitement because the girl had radiation and with radiation comes other risks. And, you know, they had to read her the riot act a little bit saying that one of the easiest cancers to get now is skin cancer and you have to be vigilant with sunblock. But it's so nice to hear that from your oncologist than it is to hear from your mom and dad, because we're still, still simply just annoying mom and dad. Um, but when your doctor says it, it's the truth. And you have to listen to her because you don't want to disappoint her. And so I'm glad that those things came out of her mouth. But it's tough because it's Ava's reminder that cancer still exists and she has to continue to battle it in a different way. Where can people get in touch with you if they'd like to hear more about Ava, hear more about what you're doing and um, anything else that uh, they might want to know about your amazing uh, daughter and an amazing journey that she's been through. So the easiest way to find, there's a few ways to find me. So you can email me it's the easiest way, maybe um, at M S G I R O at gmail.com. Uh, I'm also M S G I R O on Twitter. Um, I'm also had a life-changing experience through this and have given up my career. And now I write novels. And so I have an Instagram page that's gyro G I R O the author. Uh, you can also find me there and, and I'm available via direct message. And, 
Um, and then we can go from there. Um, it can just be a simple hello. It could be a, a simple, I share the same story. Uh, it could be a simple, I'm in the throes of this and I don't know what to do. Can you help me? And I am the first person to drop everything to help that individual. I've met so many strangers along this journey who have become friends. And uh, we are an incredible, tight, knit group of people who all pour love and support into making sure we're all okay. Um, and people find me, people read an article about Ava and Johnny Busick, or people read something in the Boston Globe about her and find me as a result. The one thing is I'm the last person in the country to carry my last name. So searching my last name, you'll find me rather easily. <laughs> um, and I, I think that's Googling me kind of gets a lot of friends that way too. <laughs> well, I have to say, as we come to the end of this podcast, um, you have a daughter who was the 10th recipient of a CAR T cell treatment at Boston Children's Hospital, which is one of the great hospitals uh, in the world. So um, what they did for her was wonderful. And thank you so much, first of all, for coming onto my show, sharing a beautiful, uh, heart-wrenching story in many areas. But at this point, when you hear the words, that you're not that Ava's not going to have to worry about her leukemia coming back. Um, and the fact that you actually shed some tears on that, I'm sure that you shed more than a few and rightfully so. So uh, I want to wish you and, and uh, uh, Allison and Sophia and Ava much good health as time goes on. And uh, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's always great to share this story and you have a great day. I hope that you appreciated hearing Mark talk about what Ava had to go through to get to the point where she has been cancer-free for two and a half years. And it is always so nice to see when someone as well-known in the community as John Busick takes the time to become personally involved with a pediatric cancer patient who needed all the moral support that she could receive. This is Mark Levine, and please tune in on Thursday when I will speak with Oscar Ortiz, who will discuss his son Sebastian's very difficult 14-month fight against rhabdomyosarcoma, which he was diagnosed with as a sophomore in high school in October of 2015 and passed away from in December of 2016. Oscar will also discuss the Sebastian Strong Foundation, which Oscar and his wife Rose started in 2017 to honor the memory of their beloved son.